Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to listen carefully to this Mission Impossible series podcast. Follow the website, talkinggreatestfilms.wordpress.com, and subscribe to the Talking Films pod on Anchor, Spotify, or however you listen to it. Staying tuned for future podcast episodes. This podcast will self-destruct never. Welcome back to Talking Films. My name is Ray. Thanks again for joining me as we continue on the Mission Impossible podcast series. Moving on to Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, the fifth out of six installments in the franchise thus far. Before we get into it, just a quick reminder to check out Talking Films on Twitter at Films Talking. Also check out the website talkinggreatestfilms.wordpress.com. On there you'll find some great content such as the written 007 series reviews. We have a bunch up right now. All of the Connery Bonds are up as well as the George Lazenby on Her Majesty's Secret Service. There's more on the way. As well, we have other standalone podcasts. Next one up is 1995's The Usual Suspects. But with that out of the way, let's get right into Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. As always, there will be spoilers discussed over the course of this episode. So if you haven't seen Mission Impossible Rogue Nation or any of the Mission Impossible movies for that matter, please go and watch them and then listen to the rest of the Mission Impossible podcasts, which I have up on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts. However you're listening right now, you can find the other ones. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, as I mentioned, number five in the franchise, directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who also wrote the screenplay based on a story by Drew Pierce. The music was done by Joe Kramer, of course, continuing the tradition of a different director uh, and more or less a different composer for each movie. Michael Giacchino did the music for three and four, uh, but there was a different director for all of the first five Mission Impossible movies. Uh, and in some ways, they were all kind of unproven directors at the time. I might talk a little more about this when we go into Mission Impossible Fallout on the next episode. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation starred Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, of course, and the rest of his team, Simon Pegg, Jeremy Renner, Ving Rhames, introducing Rebecca Ferguson, Sean Harris, Simon McBurney, Alec Baldwin, and Tom Hollander in a small but uh, kind of great role as the British Prime Minister. Rogue Nation was initially slated for a December 2015 release, but was moved back to July so that it didn't have to compete with the new Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, did very well for itself at the box office, over $680 million worldwide. Uh, it was actually the 12th highest grossing movie, uh, at least domestically, in 2015, uh, falling behind Jurassic World, The Force Awakens, Avengers Age of Ultron, Inside Out, Furious 7, American Sniper, Minions, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2, The Martians, Cinderella, and Spectre. Uh, but Rogue Nation, again, did very well for itself. Anytime you can uh, accumulate that kind of, of cash at the box office is a really good sign. And in a lot of ways, Rogue Nation was uh, a return to form for the Mission Impossible franchise. We experienced a little bit of that with Mission Impossible 3 and a little bit more with Ghost Protocol. But uh, with Rogue Nation, I think that this is where the franchise uh, really begins to hit its stride. Uh, well, maybe not begins to hit its stride. That might be miswording it, but uh, really comes into into true form in in a lot of ways. Um, the opening credits again uh, have the Mission Impossible tradition of showing you things that will happen in the movie without uh, kind of spoiling it or unveiling the plot. Uh, we had seen a return to that with Mission Impossible uh, Four: Ghost Protocol, uh, so this one continues that. The pre-credit sequence is really fun. Uh, of course, this is the sequence with Tom Cruise hanging off the side of an airplane as it's taking off, and then after it's taken off, uh, which is a classic Tom Cruise stunt. This is the first. It's worth noting this is the first Mission Impossible movie where they designed the stunts 
first and then uh, molded and created the plot around those stunts. And I might talk a little bit more of those or a little bit more about that later on. Uh, but in that opening pre-credits sequence, we get our, our classic Benji banter. We get a classic Tom Cruise stunt. We get a little bit of reveal as to what's happening now. It seems like Brant, played by Jeremy Renner, is running things now back from headquarters, which is interesting. Luther appears to be back in the fold in a big way. So it's a it's a fun, fast-paced, high-stakes, but also interesting pre-credit sequence, which sets up uh, the rest of the movie. So it's definitely not a standalone uh, heist or a standalone mission. It's something that ties in with the rest of the movie. After the credits, we get the introduction to the syndicate in a really, really great uh, kind of twist on the familiar mission briefing, which Ethan gets. Uh, ha about halfway through or two thirds of the way through that mission briefing, you know, we get that re great reveal, that great twist of we are the syndicate in the mission briefing. So clearly they've hacked into IMF, they've hacked into his briefing. Things take a, a real dark turn real fast. Uh, we get the shot of the mysterious man who we come to know as Solomon Lane, played by Sean Harris, uh, shooting the record store attendant or IMF agent uh, in the head. Uh, and then the great shot of Ethan in the booth as it's filling up with gas and he's trying to punch his way out. That's a really great shot. Uh, then we transition into a hearing where the IMF seems to be under investigation, particularly from CIA director Hunley, played by the great Alec Baldwin, who's, I think, awesome in this movie and in Followed as well. Um, we kind of get a brief rundown or run through of all of Ethan's missions, uh, except Mission Impossible 2, which is interesting because Mission Impossible 2 is the only movie where he's actually on a real IMF mission. And all the other ones, he's kind of disavowed or going against uh, the IMF. So it's interesting that the run-through of all his missions excludes the only one that was actually a mission. Uh, but we, we kind of get the quick recap of everything that he's done and that his team has done and kind of how suspect and questionable they are after the fact. Like, we don't necessarily think of it at that point in time, but it's when, when it's presented to us in that format, we kind of have to agree with Hunley, Hunley a little bit and say, well, yeah, Ethan did go against the IMF a lot, or he did go against what the U.S. government kind of wanted. Uh, and then, of course, Hunley gets that line, you know, disregard for protocol and relying heavily on luck. Well, yeah, that's Ethan. If we've seen the first four movies, we know that that pretty much describes Ethan to a T. Disregard for protocol, relying heavily on luck. That, that sounds like our guy. Then Ethan is uh, detained. He's about to be tortured uh, by this mysterious woman who we come to know as Ilsa Faust, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who is incredible and badass and beats the crap out of a bunch of guys, helping Ethan escape. But is she a villain? Is she a good guy? We don't know yet. We just know that she's maybe undercover and helped Ethan escape. Anyway, this all comes to light later on. Uh, Ethan's really been putting in work while he's away, uh, you know, lifting weights and, and working out. Uh, I mentioned this think in the last podcast episode but uh tom cruise appears to get bigger as the first five mission impossible movies go on um which isn't necessarily a bad thing it ties into his character uh we get benji reassigned to desk duty at the imf uh or essentially gaming duty uh and then his adventure to vienna where it appears as though he's won two tickets to the opera we know that that's not the case but he doesn't and that kicks off an incredible sequence which i'll talk about uh, in a few minutes, but the opera sequence, everything in that whole scene and sequence is just perfectly written. It's perfectly choreographed and it's perfectly and expertly executed. And I will talk a lot more about that in a little while. Uh, in that sequence, they save the Austrian chancellor, Ethan and Benji. Uh, they're successful in saving the Austrian chancellor, Except they don't, because his car blows up as it's driving away. This really sends things into a spiral. The syndicate and the CIA are now both hunting Ethan. Uh, there's a great scene after Benji and Ethan get away where Benji kind of puts his loyalty to Ethan out there. He really wears it on his sleeve. Uh, it's a great show of emotion by Simon Pegg, who in the, the first couple of movies has kind of been not relegated to, because I think it's an important part and I think he's an important character. Uh but he's been more or less the comic relief in the two movies he's appeared in up to this point. 
And in Rogue Nation, he really Simon Pegg really gets to flex his acting muscles. Uh, I think he's a wonderfully underrated actor. He's done some incredible stuff, largely known as a comedic actor, and rightfully so. But I think, uh, you know, in those moments of emotion, I think he he can really shine as well. And and I think uh, that the scene uh, in the kind of the basement of the boat where he he really you know, wears his loyalty to Ethan on his sleeve and, and pours his heart out to him. You know, I think that's a really, really great scene. And it, it, it's kind of an introduction to a, not quite a different Benji, but just uh, a more developed Benji, if that makes sense. Uh, joining forces with Ilsa turns out to work out well for Ethan and Benji. But meanwhile, back home, Luther and Brant are joining forces to try and find them before Hunley does. So now there's this big race on, and that's one of the Mission Impossible trademarks is, you know, there's always a race of some kind, whether it's a race to someone or a race against the clock. Uh, and speaking of races and races against the clock, there's the, that great race against time in the underwater sequence when Ethan is stealing the, uh, the, the or hacking into the, the underwater computer and, and stealing the information, uh, the disk. Uh, you know, we have double stakes now because not only can is it possible that Ethan can run out of oxygen, but he also has to do it before Benji gets to the gate. Um so, you know, we, we have our two kind of primary characters in this movie, if you will, uh, both at risk in the scene. It's it's a great tense scene. Uh, and then, it, you know, it just makes matters worse when uh, when Ethan drops both of the yellow cards and kind of has to gamble and and try and guess which one the right one is. Of course, he guesses right because it's Mission Impossible. And, you know, every as much as things seem like they're going to go wrong, we know that they're going to go right in the end. Uh and then the hatch is secure and he's out of oxygen. So Benji's in, but what about Ethan? The heart rate sound effect in there is a great effect uh, in it and helps raise the tension a little bit as we kind of hear that pulse sound or heart rate sound. And then, of course, we get Ilsa uh, diving in to save the day and, and you know, swim Ethan to safety and bring him back to life, uh, essentially for the second time. Remember in Mission Impossible 3, it was Ethan's then-wife, Julia, played by Michelle Monaghan, who... Uh, makeshift defibrillated Ethan back to life here. Elsa actually has a real defibrillator and uses that to revive Ethan. One more touch that I, I really liked about that underway underwater sequence was, uh, as Ethan, you know, he's passed out, he's floating away from, uh, from the hatch, the camera floats away with him. Uh, and we kind of get that almost from Ethan's perspective, just to kind of convey exactly what is going on as it's going on. Immediately after that, we get the exhilarating car chase through, uh, I believe it's Marrakesh in Morocco, uh, which is really fun. Uh, that transitions right into a motorcycle chase, which is just as fun. Uh, it's nice to see Ethan go all out on all those things again. Uh, and on a motorcycle too, remember Mission Impossible 2, the climactic chase sequence was on a motorcycle. Uh, Ethan apparently just really hates motorcycle helmets. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that once we get to Fallout. If you've seen it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But Ethan just doesn't really have any regard for his own safety, which goes double for Tom Cruise, I think. I think his, you know, his panache and his desire to uh, give audiences exhilarating stunt sequences without really having any regard for his safety, uh, maybe you could say it's a little bit misguided, but especially in the Mission Impossible franchise, it 100% delivers in big ways. From that motorcycle sequence, we kind of sneak towards what is supposed to be the climax of the movie. I'll talk about that uh, soon as well. Uh, we had a lot of exposition in between the motorcycle chase and the uh, the, the climax. Uh, Ilsa lays out all the options to Ethan and then double crosses him, or, or does she? Uh, we don't really know how exactly Lane is operating at this point. Uh, but then Benji is kidnapped by the syndicate, and then all of a sudden things become personal to Ethan. And as you know, if you've listened to my other Mission Impossible episodes, this is really when Ethan is at his best, when he's got personal stakes in addition to, uh, you know, end-of-the-world, apocalyptic, uh, villainous stakes by the bad guy. Uh, and this is when the movie reaches its its conclusion, its its apex, we get that scene with Ethan doubling Atlee, the British minister, to get the info from the British PM, who, as I mentioned off the top, is played pretty brilliantly by the great Tom Hollander. 
I feel like he always gets these kind of weird roles in anything he's in, at least in anything I've seen him in. Uh, it's a much more restrained role from him here. Of course, he's probably most well-known for being in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Um, but here, it's it's a really restrained, but I think really, really well-done uh, role. Almost a cameo, you could say, by Tom Hollander as the British PM. Uh, and that whole scene with Ethan doubling Atlee, shooting the truth serum in to reveal the info to Hanley, uh, is really well done. We get the great mask reveal, the classic Mission Impossible mask reveal when Ethan rips his mask off. Uh, you know, that's all really well done. Then we get Benji. There's a bomb strapped to him. Lane is speaking to him through an earpiece, sending the messages to Ethan. And then once Lane defuses the bomb that is strapped to Benji, Benji slips away. It's an all-out chase and race to the finish line uh, in which Lane doesn't die. And I think this is a very important thing to note. It's the first Mission Impossible movie where the villain or the primary villain isn't killed at the end, uh, which sets up possible returns. And there's lots of theories out there as to why this might be. Did they know that Lane was going to return? Well, not really. They didn't know that when they were writing it. Uh, but in writing the character of Lane, Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise, who collaborated a lot on the script uh, and on the writing process, um, they couldn't find a really satisfying way to bring an end to Lane's character. So they figured they would just keep him alive and kind of bring him into, uh, you know, bring him to justice, bring him uh, into custody at the hands of the IMF, uh, which we hadn't had in the Mission Impossible franchise before. And then when it came time to write Mission Impossible Fallout, they realized what a great opportunity this would be to bring Solomon Lane back into the fold. Uh, and of course, we get that great line when Lane is in the box, which is about to fill up with gas. So it kind of bookends the movie, similar to how Ethan was in the booth filling up with the gas. It's the same process that kind of gives us that concluding uh, shot of Lane getting pushed into the police car in this glass box. But we get the IMF team standing on all sides of the box and Ethan says, meet the IMF or welcome to the IMF. Or I can't remember exactly what the line is, but um, you know, it's a great moment there. We kind of get the, the whole IMF plus Ilsa united on screen at once uh with the villain in custody it's it's a good scene um and again it, it just sets up the possibility for his return which we eventually ultimately get in mission impossible follow uh i do want to talk a lot about the supporting or a little bit about the supporting cast in this one i know i've mentioned the supporting cast in the other episodes here i think it's it's a really really great supporting cast uh rebecca ferguson is simply outstanding as ilsa i'm going to talk more about her in a minute uh, Sean Harris, I think, is really great as the villain. And one thing that I think Mission Impossible, again, if, if you've listened to the other episodes, you know that um, one thing I really appreciate about the Mission Impossible franchise is that it really sets itself up as the anti-Bond franchise. And at no point uh, during a lot of the Mission Impossible movies do we get this monologue piece by the villain. You know, he doesn't pontificate. He doesn't give this big speech that just buys time for the good guys to or for the IMF to, to come in and save the day. You know, he's straight, he's to the point. I will talk more about him as well, but uh, Sean Harris, I had never seen him in anything before this. Uh, and even since then, I think I've only seen him in a couple of things, uh, such as Mission Impossible Fallout. He had a uh, a very important role in, in the movie The King, which starred Timothy Chalamet, which is on Netflix, which I think is a pretty underrated movie. Uh, and he's got an underrated role in that as well. Uh, Simon Pegg, I've, I've talked a little bit about him already. Once again, he's awesome. He's he's a good balance between humor and emotion in this movie. And again, I think uh, in Rogue Nation, he really taps a little more into the emotion or he's allowed to tap a little more into the, the serious and the emotional side of things. Uh, Jeremy Renner as Brandt, he's reduced a little more to an office type than before. Uh, I would have liked to see him in more action sequences, but it did make sense to the script and it did make sense to his uh, kind of background of being an analyst and being kind of the secretary's right-hand man, at least at the start of uh, Ghost Protocol. So it makes sense that he would be a guy back in headquarters who's kind of running things. He's got, you know, he's got both sides uh, of the agent background there. So so I think it makes sense. They, they, they make it make sense anyway. Uh, and finally, last but not least, Alec Baldwin uh, is, in, in, I think, an important and a really fun addition. We get this 
experienced, well-known actor coming in as the director of the CIA, who, similar to other uh, authority figures throughout the Mission Impossible franchise, uh, appears initially and throughout the movie as in opposition to Ethan and the IMF, but ends up kind of being convinced or turning tail or not being uh, in opposition, being an ally. And of course, at the end, we get the the final line of the movie when Brant says to him, welcome to the IMF, Mr. Secretary. And again, it's set up for the sequel. We hadn't seen any of that before Ghost Protocol when we just get that small, almost throwaway line about the syndicate as Ethan's walking away into the mist. Here we get a very, very blatant setup to potential sequels where that's the final line of the movie. Welcome to the IMF, Mr. Secretary. We know that with Alec Baldwin in a figure of authority for the IMF, as the figure of authority for the IMF, they're destined for bigger and better things as the franchise goes on. Uh, one thing that I started mentioning as the, the podcast episodes have, have gone on uh, about the franchise is the technology. We didn't see a lot of reliance on it through the first couple of movies. Obviously, there was some, uh, but here we get some some great technology, the glasses technology that Ethan gives to Benji uh, before the opera sequence where they're talking to each other through the glasses and, and Benji has that kind of facial recognition uh, aspect to it. Uh, that's a really cool piece of tech. Uh, when Ethan and Ilsa are breaking into the computer terminal, I, I watched it a couple times. I still can't really make out what it is, but he puts a disc onto the, the window and I think that disc, it like liquefies the glass. It counts down and then instead of blowing up the glass, it almost seems like it liquefies it, which is really cool. And even though it's only used in that one instance, it might be one of the coolest pieces of tech in the Mission Impossible franchise. Um, and then right after that, the the water suit that Ethan wears with, with the oxygen readout on his arm. And I think that's very helpful, not only because it shows Ethan how much oxygen he has left, but because no matter what he's doing, no matter what angle he's shown at, no matter what how close to the camera he is, we don't need a separate shot to see how much oxygen he has left. It's very obvious in all of the shots where he's working away underwater just how much ox how much oxygen he has. And I don't know if that was done on purpose or or if it was just a happy accident, but uh, it's a really useful tool for us as the audience. Uh, even though, of course, the the primary objective was to show Ethan how much oxygen he has left. Some of the Mission Impossible trademarks, we get the race against the clock. We get a double check on that, of course, uh, because we get Ethan uh, in that underwater sequence as he's running out of oxygen as Benji's approaching the gate. Then we get the race against the clock when Benji has the bomb strapped to him and it's counting down. Um, we don't really get the trademark Ethan falling and then being suspended above the ground. That's the one that we've had in pretty much every movie so far. In this one, we don't really get that. The one time when he kind of drops through the air, uh, it's into the, the underwater computer terminal. So he kind of dives all the way into the water. You can make the argument that maybe being suspended above the ground is when he's in the plane um, at the very start of the, or sorry, on the plane at the very start of the movie. Uh, but he's not falling before that. So I don't know if that really counts uh the mission debrief self-destructing sort of uh because again the the mission briefing in rogue nation is actually from the syndicate and it doesn't really self-destruct it just emits a gas that uh knocks ethan unconscious so it doesn't really self-destruct but at the same time it, it still kind of hits that uh that trademark uh, fun disguises check. Ethan doubling as Atlee is a great, uh, great scene. The mask reveal, of course. Close calls that almost blow their cover. Uh, we don't quite get that, but we do. Uh, the one instance where that is true is Benji, of course, approaching the gate as Ethan's racing against the clock underwater. I've mentioned that scene a lot. Uh, the Tom Cruise run, of course, we get that. Uh, we don't get either of the Luther. Uh, trademarks, which are Luther telling Ethan how dumb or crazy his idea is. We don't really get that. Luther's kind of the one saying that, I mean, he's right. It's the only way. Uh, 
we don't really get Luther in peril either. That one, I don't know if it's so much a trademark. It just happens, I think, two or three times throughout the, the franchise. Uh, so it might not be so much a trademark, just so much as part of the movie that kind of raises the stakes and something that I uh, enjoy as part of it. Uh, the one Mission Impossible theme of misdirection uh, towards the start of the movie, we think the CIA is breaking into Ethan's apartment in Cuba, but just kidding, it's an empty apartment. Ethan's just got a camera in his apartment in Cuba, and he's in Paris. Uh, also in that scene, we get Ethan Hunt with beard, which is kind of cool. We haven't seen that yet. Uh, the, the misdirect in that underwater sequence, and I've talked about this underwater sequence a lot, but it, it is really well done. It raises attention a lot. But we get that device underwater, which passes over just over Ethan's head as he's at the uh, the terminal where he's switching out the discs. Uh, it passes right over his head. And so naturally, we think that the next time it's going to pass over, we're going to see it coming beforehand. But then it comes back from the opposite direction and takes him out, knocks him off the, the terminal. The unpredictability of that is great. That was a great touch uh, thrown in. And it's a great misdirect because, again, Naturally, we think, okay, well, this thing's just going to go in a circular clockwise motion, but it must stop and come back the other way because that's the direction it comes from. Uh, Ilsa rescues Ethan, but then immediately after zaps Benji with the defibrillator and steals the data which they retrieved, but then escapes from Lane's henchmen. So we don't really know whose side she's on at this point. You know, it's like, oh, good, she's on Ethan's side. Oh, no, she's on Lane's side. Oh, no, she can't be on Lane's side because she just escaped from them. So this is confusing, and again, it, it it is confusing, but it's it's intentionally supposed to be. You're not supposed to know at that point in time which side she's on, whose side she's on. Uh, right after that, we get Ethan and Benji uh, running out to the car to chase after her. Ethan jumps to slide over the hood of the car and just wipes out. It's a good misdirect. He's still, uh, you know, a little dazed from the defibrillator, but. We don't get that classic action hero moment. We get that just wipe out over the hood of the car. Then we get Brant. Uh, it appears as though he's betraying Ethan to Hunley. Turns out it wasn't a betrayal at all, but it was all part of the plan to reveal the fact that the syndicate was real to Hunley uh, as Ethan is doubling Atley, which is another great misdirect. Again, I've talked about the, the classic mask reveal, which we get, which has been missing from uh, a couple of the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, and again, if you've listened to any of the other Mission Impossible podcasts, which I hope you have, if you haven't, please do so. Um, you've heard me say this already, but uh, the great Mission Impossible trademark, we know that Tom Cruise is going to be successful. We know he's going to accomplish the mission, but we don't entirely know how. And sometimes the movie always makes us think, holy crap, he's not going to do it. But he always pulls through. And that's the charm of the series or part of the charm of the series is that he always does pull through. Getting into the segments now, best scenes and best shots. I said I was going to talk about it earlier. I haven't talked about it a ton yet. The opera sequence, it's not as epic. It's not as stunt heavy. It's not as uh, epic in scale or cinematic or broad in scale as some of the other Mission Impossible set pieces. But I... I have trouble finding another sequence from a Mission Impossible movie that I would say is more of a favorite than this one. Uh, the whole sequence I mentioned, it's just expertly written and expertly shot, expertly choreographed with the opera music going on the whole time in the background. Um, you know, Ethan and Benji are there on a mission. Elsa's entrance complicates things without really complicating them. It just adds to the mystery and the intrigue. Then we get two assassins. We get the other guy coming in. So now there's double the stakes for Ethan. Who does he go after? The operatic soundtrack adds to the mystique and the elegance of the sequence as Ilsa, who in this whole sequence in that stunning yellow dress is just a picture of elegance as she walks into the, the booth, assembles her weapon, braces herself for the shot, uh, the choreography of the fight backstage is absolutely incredible and plays out almost like a violent ballet. Uh, we get a very quick glimpse of Sean Harris uh, as Solomon Lane, who at this point we only know him as the guy from the record store. Uh, we see him seeing Ethan through the contact lens camera. 
Now all of a sudden there's a third assassin entering the sound booth. It's an extremely complex sequence with extremely precise editing and choreography. And I've said this about other movies before uh, and other movies in the Mission Impossible franchise, but it would have been easy for us to become completely disoriented and lose all sense of geography or setting or where everything is in this whole sequence. But because of the way that it's shot, because of the editing, we know with 100% certainty exactly where everyone and everything is from beginning to end of this entire sequence. And that is really, really tough to do, especially when you have all of these different moving pieces figuratively and literally. We have Benji back backstage in a, in a kind of a back closet almost. We have Ethan finding his way backstage to the one assassin. We have Ilsa setting up backstage. We have the sound booth. We have the other assassin making his way to the sound booth. We have the Austrian chancellor. We have the opera stage itself. There are so many different moving pieces that the cameras focus on throughout the sequence, but at no point is it ever possible for the audience to become lost in terms of who is where. We always have clear sight lines of who is where, clear sight lines of where they're looking at, where they're going to, uh, even at towards the end as to what Ethan is thinking and, and kind of the dilemma, the catch-22 he's put in. Does he shoot the one assassin? Does he shoot Ilsa, who we still don't really know who she is at this point? Does he, you know, ultimately he makes the choice to, to wing the Chancellor and kind of get him out of Ilsa's line of fire and the other assassin's line of fire. And, and you know, it's not really clear at first why he does it, but... As the sequence progresses, we we figure it out, uh, you know, that that was done to, to really save the Chancellor. Um, the other thing that I really love uh, in this whole sequence, uh, and, it, and again, we get the music, we get the, the fight backstage, the moving pieces literally as the, the backstage uh, kind of scaffolding or, or light fixtures or whatever they are kind of move up and down. Uh, it almost becomes operatic or like a ballet in itself, as I mentioned. But the one thing that I really love is the quick cuts to the to the sheet music. We see that Ilsa opens up the the music book, and there's that uh, you know very obvious musical note circled in red, and we know okay, well that's when she's going to take the shot. And between that moment and her taking the shot, when we get to that moment in the opera, there are some quick cuts, some quick shots of the sheet music, and it shows us where we are in the opera. And it's extremely useful detail. And in some ways, it, it becomes that race against the clock that is part of the what makes the Mission Impossible franchise so great. Um, you know, it's an extremely useful detail. It's executed flawlessly. Again, it helps situate us as the audience where we are, not only geographically, but in the opera so that we know, okay, we're getting a whole lot closer to this moment when Ilsa's going to take the shot. Uh, and it's done quickly, but it's done in a way that it doesn't draw us out of anything that's going on in the scene. Uh, it's done to in a, in a way that enhances the scene. It enhances that race against the clock. Uh, and then Ethan and Ilsa's escape from the opera. Uh, it's, it's a really fun kind of advancement to their relationship. We get that great scene of... of Ethan's about to help Elsa down off the roof and she just says, shoes, please. Because naturally, it would be almost impossible for someone to make that kind of escape in those kinds of heels. So the fact that they would kind of pause things to allow her to remove her shoes, it, it really grounds us within reality a little bit. And I think that's the strength of the Mission Impossible movies as they go on is yeah, the stunts get more and more epic, the sequences get more and more complex, such as this opera sequence, but um, we get really more and more grounded in reality. And I think that started with J.J. Abrams in Mission Impossible 3, and it's kind of happened more and more as the movies go on. You'll hear me talk about that a little more when we get to Fallout. Um, but this whole opera sequence, I don't, I don't know how long I've been talking about it now, probably way too long. But again, I, I, I'm really hard-pressed to find a sequence that I enjoy more, that I kind of am mesmerized by more than this sequence in the Mission Impossible franchise. Um, and it, it's, it's quite frankly, like you can find flaws in some of the other big set pieces that Mission Impossible has. 
I truly believe that the sequence is as close to flawless as the Mission Impossible franchise gets. There's whole all kinds of mystery, all kinds of intrigue, all kinds of racing against the clock. The the editing and the cinematography, as I as I mentioned, is absolutely uh, perfectly done, uh, and it's just an, an incredibly enjoyable sequence. Uh, there are some other great kind of individual shots throughout the movie. I'm not going to mention a, a lot of them. I will say the most laugh out loud moment of the movie for me is during that car chase through Marrakesh when Ethan and Benji's car kind of skids to a stop as they're making a turn and it comes to a stop right in front and, and right next to the car that Brent and Luther are in. All four of the actors' expressions are absolutely prices. Tom Cruise just seems absolutely bamboozled. Like, what is going on? But we know he's still impacted and still dazed from the defibrillator. Luther just gives this kind of weird little wave. Brant just looks absolutely flabbergasted. And then we get the great shot of Benji kind of regaining his uh, kind of geography and regaining his balance and looking up. And just as he starts driving away, he kind of squints and points at the other car. Uh, it's an absolutely priceless moment. It's, for me, it's the biggest laugh of the movie. Um, and it, it's all four actors in that scene. Fing Rames, Jeremy Renner, Tom Cruise, and Simon Pegg. I don't know if, if their reactions were scripted. Like if Chris McQuarrie went to them and said, this is how I want each of you to react. Or if they just did the scene and had the actors react organically. Either way, their reactions are perfect. Totally on brand. Totally within their characters. And totally hilarious. Best quotes. Uh, this movie is is dialogue heavy at times, which I'll talk about. Uh, but it doesn't really have a lot of great quips and great one-liners. Uh, I'll talk about this again. We don't get a, a ton of great banter. We get some at the start uh, in the in the plane sequence as Ethan is on the plane and Benji's trying to open the door for him. Luther and Brant are also yelling at him through the through the the mics. Um, but the, the, the first really great one-liner that we get is after Ilsa kicks everyone's asses as she's about to help try and free Ethan. We still don't know who she is. She's just shown up and she kicks everyone's asses and Ethan kind of says, we've never met before, right? As if a woman with her kind of skills and talents would naturally be someone that someone like Ethan Hunt would have encountered before. And then as Benji's approaching the opera, uh, Ethan's talking to him through the glasses technology and he says, Benji, we're trying to keep a low profile. You want drama? Go to the opera. Why the movie works. Uh, the strength of the franchise has been its insistence on being anti-Bond. Um, I mentioned a little bit about that in Ghost Protocol about why I didn't necessarily feel like they handled Jane that way. She kind of becomes the seductress. Uh, the character of Ilsa in the hands of any other writer or director, she could have easily been turned into a Bond girl, but she never ever feels like one here. Yes, we get the moment of her emerging from the pool in a bikini. Yeah, we get the moment, the the quick shot of her uh, after rescuing Ethan, kind of undressing a little bit from, from the back, but those moments are just glossed over. Neither the audience's or the camera's gaze or Ethan or Benji's gaze lingers at all. So yeah, it's you know it's obvious that she's a woman and a very attractive woman who, um, who has the same skill set that Ethan does. But one of the things, and and if you've read some of the uh, some of the written reviews that I have up on on the website about the Bond movies, is that um, you know I talk I talk a little bit about the male gaze or the gaze of the camera. It never lingers on her in those uh, kind of intimate or uh, unclothed if you will moments uh so ilsa never feels like a bond girl uh you know more times often than not in this movie she's the savior she saves ethan on a number of occasions she saves benji on a number of occasions um she's never the damsel in distress in this movie and she very much does feel like ethan's equal like i feel like they could have just as easily written the role of ilsa for a man and it would have been exactly the same role nothing would have really changed about that character um only when it gets to fallout do we really get the whole 
uh, connection between her and Ethan. I'll talk more about that uh, on the next podcast episode when I do talk about Fallout. But um, you know, the the as I as I've said, this the strength of Mission Impossible is that it does feel very anti Bond, and again, the role of Ilsa also feels very anti Bond, and just in the way that she's written in the way that she's shot and especially in the way that Rebecca Ferguson portrays her. I'd never seen her in anything before Rogue Nation. Um, I know people have raved about her and Dr. Sleep. I would very much be one of those people as well. She's an incredible uh, force of nature in Rogue Nation uh, and a, a great character to be introduced in this movie. Another reason why the movie works, again, uh, the villains in Mission Impossible they're not always the highlight of the movie, but they're always, in, in all of these movies, they've been really great characters. Uh, and they all kind of fall into the same vein a little bit in terms of not being monologue not, you know, flying off the hook and in rage or anything. Solomon Lane is a very menacing, soft-spoken type of villain. He almost looks too nerdy to be the villain. Like, the first time he shows up on screen, you almost want to laugh at him. Uh, you know, he's wearing a turtleneck, he's got close-cropped blonde hair, he's got these nerdy little glasses, he just looks, Sean Harris just kind of looks like a nerdy guy at that point in time. Uh, but he does find a way to command the screen every time he's on it, through whether it's his mannerisms, whether it's what he's saying, whether it's just through what he does or how he says something. Uh, I think he's a really great and really underrated villain. The pacing of this movie is really great for the most part. For the first probably three quarters of the movie, the pacing is really, really good. You go kind of almost seamlessly from one thing to the next. Like we get that underwater sequence. All of a sudden we're into the car chase. All of a sudden right after that, we're into the motorcycle chase. Um, and then we kind of transition from that into the impersonation of Atlee. There is a lot of exposition. I'm going to talk about that uh, a little bit uh, in a minute. Uh, but it, all the exposition just sets up the coming set pieces to come. It, it hits on all the classic Mission Impossible trademarks, which I've talked about. There's fun callbacks to previous movies, and, and again, it also leaves some open ends for the sequel work. Uh, the new cast additions are perfect. There's a good injection of humor throughout the movie, again, mainly through Benji. The action, the action itself, I don't think there's one sequence which one-ups the uh, Burj Khalifa sequence in Ghost Protocol. But overall, I think collectively, the set pieces from the plane to the opera to the car chase to the motorcycle chase, uh, I think collectively the action tops the previous movies. And that's something that I know that McQuarrie and, and Tom Cruise have really set out to do, uh, not only with Mission Impossible Fallout, which came after this, but with the upcoming Mission Impossible 7 and Mission Impossible 8, which they're working on together. Um, I do think this movie one-ups generally speaking, all of the other uh, Mission Impossible movies before it with the action. Why this movie doesn't work. Uh, it can be somewhat confusing at times as to who they're infiltrating and why. I get that. It can also be tough to keep up with whose side Ilsa is on and who she's working for. But again, I think that's done more uh, intentionally so that her character kind of has this gray cloud of mystery about her uh, throughout the movie. Uh, the final action sequence, it, it doesn't feel climaxy. Like Lane just kind of diffuses the bomb on Benji, lets him walk away. Then Ethan and Ilsa get away and they manage to chase Lane down pretty easily. I think the final sequence in this movie is definitely overshadowed by the plane, the opera, the underwater, and the Morocco chase sequences. It's something that Mission Impossible has experienced before. Like I think the climax of Mission Impossible 3 uh, or sorry, the concluding action sequence, I should say, of Mission Impossible 3. I don't know if that was the climax. Uh, even with Ghost Protocol, I don't think the, uh, you know, as, as good as the, uh, you know, underground parking garage fight was, I don't think it was as, uh, as climactic as the Burj Khalifa sequence as a whole, um, and the Sandstorm chase, um, but it's very, very apparent here that they, they have a climactic problem. And I think part of that kind of falls back to the writing a little bit. And, and this isn't a knock on Christopher McQuarrie. He's an incredible writer, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment here. Um, but part of the reason for this, I think, is that, again, as I mentioned, this is the, the first time that they 
designed the stunt sequences and the action set pieces before writing the script and then kind of designed the script around them. I think this was, you know, the first time you do something like that, it, there, there are going to be flaws, there are going to be mistakes, and I think that this movie definitely has them, uh, primarily designed around the last quarter to the last third of the movie. Um, because a lot of the exposition can be a little monologue and it kind of the movie kind of gets away from fun banter and the interest of just providing us information and telling us what could or can happen and what the IMF should do next, what Ethan should do next or could do next. Um, and it, after that car chase, motorcycle chase sequence, it kind of drops off. The action really drops off. Uh, we definitely got a lot of tension, and I, I think the the scene with the British Prime Minister and, and the reveal of Ethan impersonating Atlee, that's a great classic Mission Impossible twist. But after that, there's not really a whole lot of high-stakes action. Benji's strapped to the bomb, but then, as I mentioned, he just he kind of just walks away from that. Like, the bomb just gets diffused, and he walks away, and they catch Lane really easily. Um, so again, I, I think that's part of the reason why this movie doesn't work is just the climax doesn't feel like the climax of the movie. But again, part of that could be just setting up for the sequels as well. Um, but I think the, the, my theory anyway, is that because they went with this, let's design the stunts first and then write the script around those, uh, they hadn't quite figured out how to do that yet. I think they learned from this moving forward into Mission Impossible Fallout, where they took the same strategy, uh, and and you know I th I think it definitely pays off really well in that one. Uh, was this a top three movie for the director Chris McQuarrie? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it should be noted he's only directed four movies. He's a little more accomplished as a writer. The four movies he's directed at this point in time are a movie called The Way of the Gun, which I haven't seen. Jack Reacher, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and Mission Impossible Followed. So by default, of the three movies that I've seen, directed by Chris McQuarrie, this falls into the top three. Where in the top three? Well, I think it's... You'll be able to figure it out in a moment, um, and especially after the next podcast episode. Um, but, it, you know, it's... It's it's definitely in his, in his top three, and, and by far in his top two as well. Uh, of the movies he's written, I'll go backwards chronologically here. Um, he's writing Mission Impossible 7 and 8. He's written Top Gun Maverick, which is due to be released next summer. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, The Mummy, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Edge of Tomorrow, Jack the Giant Slayer, Jack Reacher, The Tourist, Valkyrie, The Way of the Gun, and the first script he ever wrote uh, as a feature film, The Usual Suspects for which he won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, and rightfully so, because The Usual Suspects is an unbelievably well-written movie. Uh, and it, as fate would have it, it is the movie I am doing next in the individual movie podcast, so stay tuned for that. One common thread that you'll note throughout a lot of his uh, written projects, uh, you might be thinking, I th feel like Tom Cruise stars in a lot of those. You'd be absolutely right. Of the 13 projects that I mentioned, Tom Cruise stars in nine of them. That includes Mission Impossible uh, 7 and 8, by the way. So Chris McQuarrie, I think he's, an, he's a director who uh, is kind of coming into his own as, as an action director. He's, he's definitely found his niche as an action writer uh, through a lot of the movies he's written. Uh, and I'm very excited to see what he brings to Mission Impossible 7 and 8. Uh, final segment before I sign off for today, the Mission Impossible series ranking. Where does Mission Impossible Rogue Nation fall in my, uh, ranking of the Mission Impossible movies? For me, this is number two. And I know you, you might be thinking now, oh, well, you just talked a lot about how it's not very climactic and it kind of is a little too exposition-y towards the end and it loses some of that banter. You're absolutely right. I did say all of that. But for me, it's still number two because the first three quarters of the movie feels unlike any other Mission Impossible movie we've seen while still holding true to the Mission Impossible feel and trademarks. Um, and again, it just goes seamlessly from one 
sequence to the next. The opera sequence is flawless. The underwater sequence is great. We get the quick transition to the car chase, the motorcycle chase. The twists in it and the kind of the deception and misdirection in it is really, really, really well done. Um, so these, these set pieces are incredibly crafted. Macquarie creates a lot of intrigue as we leave each set piece. We're left with questions, which then lead us right into the next one. It's not just action for the sake of the action. Uh, he's able to weave all of the action together in a way that makes sense and is coherent to a plot. All of the action has a reason and is set up by the previous action. Um, I think it's a really, really incredible movie, and for me, it's number two. I'm not going to go into the full recap of my Mission Impossible rankings because I do want to leave some intrigue as to which one, uh, or as to what the, the final ranking of the six movies is going to be. Uh, but with that being said, that brings us to a close for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Please let me know what your thoughts are on Twitter at Films Talking. TalkingGreatestFilms.wordpress.com is where you can find the online written content. Thank you for listening. Please, again, subscribe on Anchor or Spotify or Google Podcasts, however you're listening. Stay tuned on the website for more 007 written content as well as more uh, written content coming your way soon. I might have a written spoiler-free review of Tenet coming your way within the next few days. Uh, I will have more 007 written content coming your way soon. Mission Impossible Fallout podcast will be coming your way within the next few days. The usual Suspects podcast will be coming your way in the next few days. So stay tuned however you're listening. Stay tuned to TalkingGreatestFilms.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this. Hope you enjoy the content to come. As always, you can go back and listen to the other podcasts as well. Thanks so much, everyone. Stay safe out there. Can you open the door? Ethan? Who are you? I'm by the plane. Benji, can you open the door? Uh, can I open the door? Uh, maybe. Open the door when I tell you! Door. The other door, right? Yes, the other door. Okay, oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, sorry. My bad, my bad.